Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, February the 22nd, 2022. Lots of twos. I'm back on the West Coast in San Francisco, back home after a, a very pleasant weekend uh, on the East Coast. Um, it's not so pleasant in international politics today, certainly not in the Ukraine. And of course, the newspapers today are dominated with headlines about the entering of Russian uh, uh, of Ukrainian territory by Russian troops. Uh, the Wall Street Journal covers that. The New York Times, of course. New York Times uh, also writes about the scope of sanctions. Uh, the New York Times is a newspaper very keen, I think, on sanctions rather than violence. Um, as it and I'm quoting the Times here, the Putin orders the forces to separatist enclaves. We're all trying to figure out Putin, as we have done on this show, every international analyst. Uh, Gideon Rachman was on my show a couple of years ago talking about how the pandemic might shift the global balance of power. One wonders what Rachman thinks now. He had an interesting piece a couple of days ago in the FT. He quotes Angela Merkel, who once described, um, and I'm quoting Rachman here, he once described Putin as a leader using 19th century methods in the 21st century. Uh, as always, Merkel seems to be on the money, really describing Putin very well, a 19th century politician in a 21st century world. We've been really trying to make sense of Putin. We've had so many shows. Last week, we had the, um, uh, the, the Washington, uh, D.C.-based expert on Putin, uh, Angela Stent, uh, and today we've got another expert on international politics, but particularly the world of power. Uh, I'm thrilled to have him. It's a real honor. Uh, Moises Naim is the author of a particularly timely new book, given what's happening today uh, on February the 22nd, 2022, uh, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. And I'm Thrilled that Moises is joining us from Washington, D.C. Uh, Moises, welcome. Do you agree with Merkel and, 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 and indirectly uh, our old friend uh, Rachman? Is Putin a 19th century politician using 21st century methods? Or is there something more revolutionary, radical, ahistorical about him? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me in your show, uh, Andrew. It's a pleasure. It's always uh, an interesting conversation. And of course, uh, uh, Putin is, um, is in many ways resembles many of the, of the dictatorial authoritarian leaders of the past. But he combines that with uh, another characteristic that I have called uh, political necrophilia. I, not about him in general, uh, specifically, but ne necrophilia, as you know, is this per perversion that, that some people have, which is uh, um, a, a strong attraction to cadavers, to, to, to the death. Well, there is a, a, a political dimension of that, which is a, a strong attachment to bad ideas um, and bad policies and bad politics. And I think he's a very good uh, practitioner of that. 
Um, and, you know, it may resemble for a while that he is very powerful and that he's getting away with uh, in invasions and other bad things. But uh, at the end, uh, at the same time that he's very powerful in many ways, he's also very weak in many others. Uh, as I said, the book is out. I think it's out this week. The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. The three words in, the, in, in, in this wonderful book, uh, Moises, you've just written, are the three Ps, populism, polarization, and post-truth. I'm assuming that Putin, another P, is the, a, a prime model for the, the, the three P dictator of the 21st century. Absolutely. And populism and uh, polarization and post-truth, we used to call post-truth propaganda, now it's bigger than that. They have always been with us. There's, uh, In principle, there's nothing new uh, with those three Ps, except that there is. Uh, the, the 21st century has intertwined them in very complex uh, ways. It has given them new potency, it made them more global, made them more immediate, uh, more stealthy and more effective. Uh, and so they, what we're witnessing is the clash of all the forces that are concentrating power, uh, leading power to be concentrated in few hands uh, in the world, uh, with uh, all the fragmenting forces that are dispersing and weakening power also around the world and in, in many industry sectors, activities, countries. So it's the clash of uh, my previous book was titled The End of Power and was an examination of um, the forces of uh, the, what I call the centrifugal forces that spread power and weakened, weakened it with the centripetal forces nowadays that are concentrating power. And it is a clash of the two, uh, of the two set of forces that explains a lot of what's going on. Yeah, uh, Moises, uh, a lot of people are going to be thinking, what's this Naim guy doing writing a book called The Revenge of Power, given that he wrote this book seven or eight years ago called The End of Power. How can power have ended and then now we have the revenge of power? I'm sure you're very well aware that Mark yeah. Zuckerberg, of all people, recommended your 2015 book, End of Power, for the first book in his book group. Uh, over the last seven years, perhaps we're at the end of Zuckerberg too. What's happened in those seven years, Moises, to in many ways, I think, change your mind about power itself, political power? Yeah, that's, those are all very fair questions. Uh, uh, essentially, well, the, the central theme of the, of the previous book is that in the 21st century, power has become easier to acquire, harder to use, and easier to lose. And that hasn't changed. That exists. But in that book... And I Zuckerberg, that, sorry to interrupt. I get into trouble for interrupting. But Zuckerberg is the perfect example of that, isn't he? Is, well, yes, and, and why not include Donald Trump? Uh, easier to acquire, harder to use, easier to lose. We don't know that if he's coming back and then may be a return and the revenge of power uh, will be very, very useful to understand how he did it. Uh, but uh, in that book, in the, in the 2015 book, I, I do mention that the, that doesn't mean the end of power, doesn't mean that there the are not significant concentrations, pockets of power, concentrated power in politics, in, in business, in, in military affairs, in international relations, um, in, in, in religion and so on. You know, 
power is still there, uh, except that now power was constrained. Power couldn't do everything they were used to. Those that held power were used to have uh, um, a range of possibilities that now is narrower. It's a narrower range. There are more limits to what they can do. And, and its power is hard to use. And that's why it's so ephemeral. It's more ephemeral. And, uh, and, and then there is the concentration of power at the same time. The point here is that it's not either or. And I think that's, that's easy to understand and to, uh, to, and to capture. It is both. Both things are working at the same time. Uh, the forces that spread power, the forces that concentrate power. And we see it. We, we see it all the time. Even uh, as powerful a person as Putin has strong constraints and very strong limitations uh, on the way he um, uh, wields his power. The, the subtitle of the book, uh, Moises, is um, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. But might we turn that subtitle on its head, isn't it politics, 21st century politics, that's reinventing the autocrat? Because Putin isn't really that different. He's just being shaped by different forces. That's an accurate observation. Yes, uh, some people, some of these leaders are riding the waves uh, that make them uh, effective autocrats. Uh, and others are just, uh, you know, defeated by these forces. Uh, but uh, but there is a combination of, of the leaders that know, uh, have identified what are these um, factors, forces, and are using it. And in the book, I show the, the toolkit of, uh, of these uh, autocrats in, in which um, there is all sorts of things. Uh, some of them are very well known and some are other rather new and potent. Um, you know, I'm thinking about social media, for example, how social media combines with post-truth to nurture the polarization that helps the populism. You know, there you have it in one phrase, the combination of all these things shaped by the new technologies that that we did not have in the past uh, with the same potency that now social media has. Your books, as always, are extremely readable and erudite, um, as one would have expected. You quote uh, de Tocqueville, who's always in these kinds of books, as well as Arendt and Machiavelli. And you take Tocqueville's observation about the French Revolution that you get unrest, you get disruption, not so much when people are impoverished or starving, but when they're unhappy. What are the conditions in the world today, Moises, that is leading to the success of politicians like Trump, Erdogan, um, Bolsonaro, Putin, Orban, all these politicians who you uh, have described as well as anyone? Uh, in the 1930s of the last century, um, Jose Ortega y Gasset, the very famous Spanish uh, uh, political philosopher, uh, wrote, um, we don't know what's happening to us. And, this is, and that is exactly what is happening to us, not knowing what's going on. And I think we all have that feeling because that feeling generates uh, uh, uncertainty and uncertainty creates anxiety. We all know that we are in the midst of uh, revolutionary changes from climate change to the pandemics, to soaring inequality, to geopolitical frictions and wars now, 
to artificial intelligence that is changing the nature of work, the nature of uh, education, the nature of commerce and shopping um, and, and health. Uh, so we all know that there is a lot going on and that is touching our, our lives, that those of our family, our company, our country, our everything. And that creates the anxiety. Uh, because we all have in, in our minds a, a kind of a script, uh, sometimes it's not even conscious, but a script about how we're going to live our lives, how, what's, what's ahead, what's going to happen. Well, um, that script now, um, those scripts uh, that in the past provided a, a level of um, uh, control or, or impression that one is in charge of one's lives uh, are no longer that reliable. So we don't know what's going on, and that is exactly what is going on in terms of creating the anxiety that is feeding um, the, the, the kind of needs, the kind of aspiration uh, that then open uh, opportunities that uh, people like Donald Trump know how to exploit. The three Ps, the three P dictators of populism, polarization, and post-truth. But let's uh, Moises briefly go back to the 19th century, Merkel's observation of Putin being a 19th century politician in 21st century garb. It's a kind of Marx might have made the observation or Machiavelli or something. There were 19th century politicians who fed off uncertainty because the middle of the 19th century was just as uncertain with industrialization and democracy and urbanization. Uh, Tocqueville wrote his great book on the French Revolution, uh, L'Ancien Regime and the Revolution. Um, living under the regime of Napoleon III, who was the ultimate 19th century political mountebank, a populist riding off anxiety and anger, never fitted in like Putin to any conventional political category. Are, is a character like Napoleon III and other 19th century mountebanks? You're very familiar, I know, with Napoleon III. He was behind the invasion of Mexico a catastrophic uh, international political event. Isn't he just the 19th century model for the Putins and the Trumps of the world? Yes and no, because uh, um, if you think about it uh, now, doing what Napoleon III did is much easier. Uh, and um, be being a superpower, being a nation that is uh, capable of projecting power across uh, oceans, in different continents at the same time, uh, is very expensive, uh, and and probably today Russia cannot afford fully that uh, that bill. So, but they have ways of doing it in the cheap, technology and internet and other uh, conditions in, in today's world make it possible uh, for for countries to project power internationally in very significant ways, and. Uh, and, and I think that is a very important difference. A lot of the politics that we are discussing in the past were very regional in nature. Um, you could you could be international, but to a limit, right? You, you, you cannot. It was very rare that you have, a, you know. Of course, you had empires like the British empires or the Spaniards, and so on. But after that, it became quite expensive to sustain an international superpower. And now is no longer the case. Now you have all kinds of cyber tools. You, you, you have uh, the internet, you have um, social media. You, all, all of that uh, helps uh, uh, 
project power internationally at a very low cost. We are talking with uh, Moises uh, Naim, the author of uh, The Revenge of Power. It's his follow-up to The End of Power. It's a fascinating book, a fascinating subject, how autocrats are reinventing politics for the 21st century. Uh, after the break, uh, Moises, I want to come back and I want to talk about how we need to confront this revenge of power, how we, at least we in the West, we Democrats, can actually get our revenge on the revenge of power. So after the break, I want to talk about the fixes to this rise of authoritarianism, of Putinism around the world, um, with uh, Moises Naim, the author of Revenge of Power. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenan. We are back with Moises Naim, the author of The Revenge of Power. Uh, Moises, uh, in the first half of the show, you mentioned the internet a lot and new technology. Um, we've done a number of shows about the impact of the internet on truth, on democracy. Peter Pomerantsev, I know you know his work very well, has been on the show, many others, Anne Applebaum. How do we fix it, Moises? You've, you've mentioned that the internet is one of the causes of the, the three Ps. Are we supposed to shut it down? What's your fix? Not at all, and, and the internet may not even be the main uh, uh, arena uh, to solve some of these problems. Uh, we need to develop better ways, better antidotes to the leaders that lie to us constantly in big, in big time. Uh, it, it is normal for politicians to embellish the truth, to distort it, to postpone, even to lie. But in some cases, the big lie is really significant and has consequences. Boris Johnson lied to the British people and to the world about Brexit and what it meant and what would be the consequences. Um, 
Donald Trump has lied and continues to lie about his failed attempt to be reelected. And Vladimir Putin is lying about Ukraine. So these are big lies, uh, and we have become uh, inured at them, and we can kind of ignore them. Uh, the, the, the costs of uh, lying at, at large scale are just too low. We need to increase the risk, the difficulties, the, the unacceptability of the big lies. The, peace, the peaceful coexistence with big lies uh, need to end. Another dimension... I, I, I take the point. I mean, it's like... You might say, well, I'd like to end world hunger. I wouldn't argue with you, but how are we going to do that? Well, more and more you, of the you, world leaders are, 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 you know, it's not just Putin. I mean, uh, there's Xi, of course, who just spoke at Davos, a highly respected leader in the international community, the business community. But he's as, as much a perpetrator as untruth as, as Putin or certainly Boris Johnson. How do you get people to stop lying, Moises? Well, the first thing you have to recognize is that they are lying and that is unacceptable. And that, uh, they, as, I, as I said, the peaceful coexistence, just tolerate it, ignore it, minimize it, uh, make fun of it, or it's not doing the, the job. It's really uh, changing uh, realities on the ground and creating human suffering, enabling and empowering thugs. Uh, so the, no, no war has ever been won uh, without first identifying uh, who the enemy is and what to be done. And, the, and, and the, this, you know, those that disseminate and that rely on their power and base their power on big lies need to be... Are you talking war. about a metaphorical war, Moises, or a literal one? No, a metaf well, I, I don't know. It's, it's maybe a combination of everything, but... I certainly, I'm not suggesting we go to a, an armed uh, a conflict against what, you know, that, that there are ways, there are ways that are institutional, legal, technological, cultural, educational, in which we can uh, give citizens uh, uh, more tools to protect themselves from uh, the abuses of, of the big lies. Is this going to come through technology? At the weekend, I talked to the British-based writer Jamie Suskind. Uh, he has an interesting new book out on how digital technology will transform politics and society, might democratize society. Is Just as digital has undermined the truth, can it solve it, fix it, be used to fight the Putins and Xi's of the world? Absolutely, but I am always wary of using technology as a, you know the technological fixes for problems that are multidimensional and that have many determinants. There is no doubt that technology will play a role in this, but there is no no, no doubt that societies and their uh, lawmaking uh, organs have also uh, an important role to to play here. So it is going to be a combination of a society that is more aware. Uh, of uh, of the lies is more aware of the manipulations and the propaganda, um, and that is capable of combining um, technological changes and innovations with uh, innovations in the way we govern ourselves, innovations in the way laws are made, innovations in which um, the, the penalties, the consequences of, of, of lying are, are not as negligible as they are. But that's not the only... Uh, way in which I say that uh, we can fight the 3P populists. Uh, I offer five battles that are quite important. The first is battling against the big lie. The second has a lot to do with the emergence of uh, criminalized states. 
you see, we always talk about corruption, and, and essentially that means that uh, someone in civil society is able to work with somebody in government to either get a kickback or an overpricing uh, supplies, uh, procurement, or rules uh, that will make some, you know, real estate developer very rich. So. Corruption is always there, but what we are seeing now is not corruption. Some call it kleptocracy, which is essentially a, 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 a ruler and his family, his cronies and the armed forces loot a country. And right, and uh, kleptocracy is a word that um, we've had, we've used a lot on the show. We had Tom right. Burgess, the author of kleptocracy, on the show. Right. As well as, so uh, Catherine Belton, who the FT journalist who's now being sued by by Putin, who exposed KGB capitalism. Are we talking about a full-scale reform of capitalism itself? Moises? No, because, uh, wait, to finish, my point is that I, uh, in the same way that I think uh, that uh, uh, corruption doesn't capture the phenomenon, uh, kleptocracy doesn't do that either. I think the criminalization of the state is what we're seeing, in which the state is using the tactics, strategies, organizational forms and activities of organized crime, of transnational organized crime, has become a tool of statecraft. And is being used by these uh, uh, 3P rulers, not just to make a lot of money for them and their families and associates, but also to govern. Uh, in, 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 and again, it's part of it's, it's used in international relations. It's used in international commerce. It's used in um, you know punishing uh, rivals and enemies and, and rewarding uh, allies. So wh what I'm saying is that the, the the criminalization of the state is a new phenomenon that has a lot of that, of what happens is very stealthy, but it's a, it has acquired a new potency that just calling it kleptocracy, you know, these people are just stealing for stealing or corruption doesn't quite get the complexity of, of, of that, the usage of those internet, of those tactics that, that, um, that, that are used by criminals. Uh, and what did you have direct experience? You've, you were a young politician in Venezuela and you were the youngest uh, finance minister in Venezuela's history. Uh, you wrote a piece recently in the journal about this, relationship between the fatal relationship between Venezuela and Cuba. Venezuela is a model for this, this sort of corruption of the state and the state becoming essentially just a, a kleptocracy for a small family or a small group of, of criminals. Yeah, in the book, uh, uh, the, I talk quite a bit about Hugo Chavez and how he was a pioneer in all of the things we have uh, we later saw. You know, watching as a Venezuelan what was happening with Trump and what are the tactics and what happened in uh, uh, around politics, uh, I, you know, I, I kept saying I already saw this movie, except that it was in Spanish. Uh, and the same in the book also I took, I, 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 des I describe and analyze uh, the, the, the phenomenon of Silvio Berlusconi in Italy and what it all meant and how he was also a precursor of all these, uh, these tricks uh, and tactics. Right, and uh, Beppo Grillo, you write about, we did a show on, um, we've done a number of shows again on Berlusconi. We, we did a show with Ruth Ben-Giet, who wrote a book, Strong Men Mussolini to the Present, gives it a very Italian flavor, very political and sexual. Is there something male about all this? Moises, the revenge of power. It's a very well, masculine yeah. kind of power, isn't it? 
Well, but that can also reflect uh, uh, the fact that uh, there is a str very strong biases of, uh, against women. But we have seen women that when they get in power, they're not that much better than uh, the men. So uh, I am careful not to ascribe to gender the propensity to be an, auto a, a, you know, an undesirable uh, autocrat. Moises, you talked about five fixes. Uh, there's the, the, the confronting kleptocracy, there's the issue of technology. What are the other three, briefly? Well, uh, the, the, the propensity of these autocrats to export the tactics, and they develop international networks of autocrats that help each other support groups, uh, alliances, some of them informal, some others uh, stealthy in very important ways. But uh, the internationalization of these tactics promoted by the export of these uh, new political technologies is called to call them in that way, is, is very important. And we need to start curbing uh, the ability of these governments to you export. You keep on saying, uh, Moises, you keep on saying we. Who, who, who exactly are lovers, we? Lovers of democracy, the liberals, uh, people that believe in the rule of law, that believe in democracy, that believe that no one should concentrate power. Uh, power has to have limits, uh, both in what it can do and how long it lasts. Uh, democracy. Now, those that are uh, that that have democracy and freedom and that uh, and the rules of democracy at the top of their mind and as uh, substantial values are the people that ought to take uh, action. And uh, starting with learning more about what's going on and starting with uh, uh, organizing and starting to participate in, we cannot take democracy for granted. We cannot just assume that it's enough to go to vote every four or five years. Uh, we need to be better informed. We need to be uh, better users of the new tools and not let uh, any charlatan to use the, use the internet to to confuse us and to uh, make us believe things that are wrong and, uh, and not true, all of that. There is another dimension, another battle that I think we need to win, that is the battle about the narrative. Uh, the, the narrative of the illiberals at this, uh, in these days uh, it, it tends to be very seductive to a lot of people, especially because it's amplified by, by the three Ps and, and technology. Um, but uh, it is quite important uh, that we confront that narrative to another narrative that is in favor of, uh, that is pro-freedom pro and pro-democracy and is a liberal um, kind of, of narrative. That has the problem that needs to, there are fixes. Well, democracy is not perfect. No, no democracy is perfect, but there are things we need to do. To right. So, so Moses, um, you as a, you know, as we as progressives, as liberals, we're ambivalent about power. You are, and that's summarized in the two titles of your book, the new book, Revenge of Power, uh, The End of Power. We have a, a love-hate relationship with it. Conservatives don't. Conservatives seem to understand the value of power. We had um, Edmund Fawcett, the author of two wonderful books, Liberalism and Conservatism, uh, on the show a couple of years ago. And I've quoted him so many times on this. It's actually about chess, the pure power game. He wrote, were politics chess, liberals had white. They moved first. Conservatives had black. They counted liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity, for the right was in telling ways the stronger contestant. Seems as if, Moises, the right now is a stronger contestant when it comes to power 
guys like Peter Thiel, for example. Uh, I've I, I had his biographer on the show as well as David Runciman. Thiel seems to believe, as Runciman wrote a review of the Thiel biography, that competition is for losers. The conservatives have gone back to classic writers on power, like Pareto or even Machiavelli. My question in terms of this narrative is, do progressives need to become more honest about power itself? Well, all of that is entangled in the highly complex new realities of identity politics, uh, in which, uh, you know, the, 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 the traditional categories of conservatives and liberals helps, uh, but it has limits because now the politics of uh, identity are quite important. And that is also related to the fact of how followers uh, relate to their leaders, in which there is what in the book I call the fandom. And they, they develop, people develop an attraction and a, a feelings for their re- leaders. It's like uh, sports, right? You suggest that is, that is like sports, like is entertainment. I call it fandom in the book. And, and that fandom is related to some specific trait that provides identity to the person and makes a person be willing to believe anything that the leader tells them. It, it, it is a very comforting, especially if you take into account my point about what Ortega y Gasset said, that is, we don't know what's going on, and that is what's going on. Well, one way of thinking uh, that you can deal with that is if you belong to a tribe, you join a tribe, you join a a cult, you join a political movement, and uh, give that um, the, the possibility of becoming your identity. And do the politics of that are very complex because you are essentially fragmenting the political system into small chunks and pieces. Some of them are liberal, some of them are conservative, but um, the main factor is not liberal or conservative, but the kind of identity that you adapt and you defend and you hang on to. But I'm not clear on how that was an answer in terms of progressives. Are you suggesting that progressives have just kind of given up and fallen into the whole of identity politics because no. while Peter Thiel gets it and he's now in Washington DC uh, and the conservatives have essentially appropriated Leninist strategy when it comes to the Caesar of the state maybe progressives are worrying about racism and they're again being outwitted outfought in this perpetual chess game all I'm saying is that the traditional categories of conservative and liberals may, may need complement, may need more. It's not enough to say that. You need to provide uh, more context and, and more perspectives on, on what it is. Uh, and um, you can, and the point is you can find identity politics uh, altering uh, the, the dynamics of power, uh, both among liberals and among conservatives. That's, that's my point. Do progressives, though, need to rethink the idea of charismatic leadership? Because whatever one thinks of Orban and Putin and Erdogan and Bolsonaro, they're all populist, semi-charismatic leaders, loathed by many, but loved by many as well. And progressives don't seem to be able to rival that. You're an old Latin American warrior. You understand the challenges and failure perhaps of, of Fidel in, in, in Castro to, uh, in, in Cuba to, to, to create a, a populism on the left. Is there a need for a, a 
a 21st century progressive populism? Well, uh, you have Barack Obama. Uh, wh- how would you describe him? How where, where would you where would it fit? Uh, he's surely not a conservative. He's a liberal. Uh, he's progressive, but he also had uh, very clear ideas about what are the, the so, some of the traditional ways of thinking uh, of the left that needed uh, repair and and and, and, and maintenance uh, uh, in terms of. Uh, fixing some of the blind spots uh, they have. So Obama is the model. Finally, um, uh, Moises, uh, we began with the Ukraine. Let's end on international politics. We had our mutual friend last year, Solia Zell, the uh, Istanbul-based p- political uh, thinker on the show. I know he's a friend of yours as well. We talked about whether the architecture of international politics is being restructured. Um what should be the West's response to Putin in a very concrete way? How would you push back? Sanctions and uh, and sanctions to specific individuals uh, and not only uh, the coterie of a uh, few people that are around here, but uh, all the oligarchs, all of the facilitators, all of the enablers, um, uh, you know, uh, I am. I much rather have sanctions that are highly targeted to individuals that deserve to be punished for their behavior than having a war. So it's, it's easy to disdain and deride uh, uh, sanctions as, as, as you know, a weak answer, but it it is a it can be very potent. Uh, and I, I I have the impression that the United States and its European ally, allies and uh, have a menu of very, very strong, uh, unprecedented kind of sanctions that go after specific uh, individuals and their entourage and their cronies and their uh, and their groups. And that will uh, have significant consequences. Well, I hope you're right, Moises Naim, on sanctions, on the value, the effectiveness of them. I'm not convinced, but we'll see. Your new book, um, The Revenge of Power, is a wonderfully honest, brutally honest, really, follow-up to your last book, uh, The End of Power. Uh, You recognize that things have changed and and your writing and your work has changed appropriately. It's an essential read, I think, to make sense of our rapidly changing world. Congratulations on that. Uh, Moises, what else should people be reading in these dark times, at least in international politics, in February 2022? Well, first, thank you for the kind words about my work and the book. I much appreciate it. Um, John Aquila is one of the founding fathers uh, of how to think about war in the 21st century, how to think about war in a time of internet and cyber weapons. And he has a new book that is still not out, but it will be out, called Bitskir, The New Challenge of Cyber Warfare. I have been reading it, and it's fascinating, and Ardila is a big thinker that is capable of integrating uh, different uh, ways of uh, looking at the problem and and provides a broad perspective and very persuasive on how uh, armed conflicts and war and the military uh, should look and will look in the 21st century. So highly recommend it. We'll have to get him on the show. And finally, Moises, we're asking everyone this, and there's no better person, I think, to ask this question. Moises Naim, the author of The Revenge of Power, as well as an earlier book, The End of Power, who runs the world, Moises? Leaders, followers, and algorithms. <laughs>